Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. This is Dean Finelli. Welcome to Politics and Life Science Radio, where we discuss all issues relating to the life science industry and how politics and regulatory policy affect the life science industry. Today is January 20th, Inauguration Day. We saw President Biden be uh, inaugurated today as the 46th President of the United States, and monumentally, Vice President Kamala Harris was also sworn in. It's really an incredible day when you think about where the country's been over the last four years, um, what we have to look forward to. You know, when we look at the president's cabinet, it's one of the most diverse cabinets we've ever seen. It's really refreshing given the events of two weeks ago, what we saw at the Capitol. Uh, They had the inauguration today despite what at the Capitol, despite what went on two weeks ago. And as someone who has the opportunity to travel to Asia to Europe, all over North America as part of my job, uh, I can tell you the, the world really needs the U.S. The U.S. is the leader in the world. When people, we look at, we kind of think of our place in the world and, you know, we thought, we've heard a lot about in the past administration, this America first policy. You know, we're a leader in the world. We're the richest country in the world. We're the most powerful country in the world. And we have responsibilities to this. Uh, with that leadership. And one of the things that jumped out at me today um, in President Biden's inauguration speech is when he said, we will lead not merely by example of our power, but by the power of our example. And I think that's really an important little snippet of his speech that really resonated with me because, you know, as the most powerful country in the world, we we have to lead by example. And you know, whether it's spending money in other countries, a lot of people were complaining about, you know, the U.S. paying our for our NATO allies defense or the U.S. shipping money to other places. Well, you know, at least in my opinion, that's how we spread democratic values and that's how we spread our power. And instead of, you know, we certainly have issues. There's a lot of people in this country that felt marginalized, that felt that their jobs were being exported. And I hope that those issues continue to be addressed because they're certainly important. We need to protect Americans as well, but we also can't fundamentally forget that as the most powerful country in the world, we have a responsibility. You know, we also saw 400,000 Americans died because of this coronavirus. I think we need a reset. We need new leadership to kind of guide us through this, to get us through this quicker and more efficiently. There's going to be much more focus on science. Here we've seen, at least as of today, there's been about 13 million people have received at least one dose of the vaccine. About 2 million people have been fully vaccinated. 
Um, and, you know, we're still way behind where we need to be. We're getting up. I think we're around 750,000 to 800,000 people a day getting vaccinated in order to hit those numbers. You know, we really need to uh, get back to that normalcy in a timely fashion. We really need to get over that million threshold a day and hopefully even more to get get that rolled out even quicker because, you know, at a million doses a day, we're still talking about getting back to normal by August, September. So it's really, you know, we want to get back to normal as quick as possible. In the meantime, we have to let the science dictate, wear your mask, wash your hands. That's the only really preventative measures we have until we're vaccinated. Uh, As far as, you know, health-wise, you know, take vitamin D. That's shown to help vitamin C, that they boost your immune system. So there are some um, personal measures you can take. Uh, we've heard a lot about the mutations of the virus. You know, it seems like the media is just jumping all over this, the mainstream media trying to scare people to get those clicks on their sites. You know, this is a virus. It's mutated hundreds, thousands of times already. Uh, we shouldn't scare the people and just say, just because there's a new mutation that the vaccine won't work or that it's going to be more deadly. Like I said, I'll say it again. This, this virus has mutated over a thousand times, many times. And just because it mutated doesn't mean that the current vaccines won't work. To that end, BioNTech and Pfizer have uh, shown that in a collaboration with uh, in Texas that it looks like the antibodies that people had uh, who previously were exposed to the virus and developed those antibodies, they were effective in treating these and overcoming these new variants. So it does look like uh, the immunity will work. The current immunity we have, the immunity from the vaccines will be enough to fight off these new strains. So again, don't be scared by the what we're hearing in the media. You know, our bodies are very resilient. We have immune systems. Over 99% of people who get infected by the uh, virus will be fine. You know, you'll obviously you can be sick to a varying degree, but eventually you'll overcome it. We know that the highest risk categories are people over the age of 65, over the age of 70. That's where we're seeing the majority of the deaths, unfortunately. And those are the people why they need to be vaccinated uh, in that first tier. Let's get everyone over 65 vaccinated because they're the highest risk category. Uh, In a uh, non-vaccine related story, uh, my buddy from law school, Steve Yoder, uh, who's the CEO of Pieris, they had some good news. They are probably going to, in the short term, move into phase two trials for their lead HER2 candidate for uh, treating solid tumors. Uh, You may recall they had a partnership uh, last summer with Eli Lilly, and they're moving their technology forward. They're developing uh, a a set of engineer proteins that are uh, a little more versatile than antibodies uh, that can kind of get into cells and get into areas where antibodies can't. So good luck to him. Glad to hear that. and glad to hear he's doing so well and his technology's moving forward. Uh, Again, thank you for joining us today on politics and life science radio. I'm your host, Dean Finelli, and I'm very happy today to have be joined by Dr. Keith Flaherty. Good afternoon, everyone, and everyone knows today is Inauguration Day. I'm very happy to have Dr. Keith Flaherty here on Politics and Life Science Radio. I'm your host, Dean Finelli. Dr. Flaherty is Director of Developmental Therapeutics at Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center and professor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Flaherty, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. So you're on the cutting edge of technology, especially as it relates to cancer therapeutics. 
in your opinion, what do you feel are some of the most promising areas of future clinical oncology? Well, I think uh, I probably would break it down into maybe three areas. I'll just kind of, you know, hit the highlights um, uh, to start with, which is, I think, you know, finishing our work to leverage uh, genetic insights or you know, genomic analysis of, of cancers um, to really um, kind of saturate that opportunity to develop so-called targeted therapies that counter uh, genetic um, uh, features of cancer uh, that, you know, that kind of point us to very specific, uh, you know, therapeutic opportunities. So, you know, what we call oncogene targeted therapy. That, of course, has been a, you know, 20-year story in development. So why would I feature that as, you know, innovative or cutting edge? I, I guess simply put, where we are now as a field is um, really kind of um, through advances in chemistry, um, finding ourselves able to drug um, what had been considered undruggable targets, you know, types of, of uh, proteins that hadn't been easy to wrestle down previously that, that seemed to be more addressable now. And that, that could end up um, uh, producing drugs that actually benefit you know, significant uh, portions of the cancer population. But the other uh, element there, just quickly, is that um, there really is a, a, a pretty vast distribution of you know, small uh, populations of cancer patients who have uh, these you know, discrete genetic alterations. Um, and, and historically, it's been considered challenging to think about um, advancing therapies for those types of populations. But we've seen some really notable success stories uh, in recent years that have motivated a bunch of companies to spring up over the course of the past, let's say, two or three years now um, to go chasing after some of those uh, sort of smaller populations. And there are many of them. And I said, if we're going to make a big impact for cancer patients, I think they need to be pursued sort of broadly. And that really kind of requires frankly, of innovation on the business model side as much as, uh, you know, the science or medicine aspect. Uh, the other major category, just quickly, is, um, of course, I'm sure your listeners are well aware of advances made um, to uh, kind of leverage the immune system to attack cancer um, and, you know, sort of the big breakthrough moment that came uh, sort of mid-2010s in that regard. But we've struggled in, in, in more recent years, these past five years, um, to keep a pipeline of those types of agents going forward. And so, I would flag there um, the idea that uh, we've, we've really learned with the so-called PD-1 antibodies, um, capital P, capital D, hyphen 1, uh, that there really is a precision medicine principle there. There are, there are molecular uh, features of cancers that really um, tell us uh, with a great degree of accuracy uh, who will respond and not respond. And those have been sort of only recently um, brought forward as ways of actually triaging patients uh, both initially in clinical trials, but ultimately in clinical practice. And then the other thing I would just mention in that domain is that um, there's been a need to advance um, model systems broadly, uh, you know, ways of screening drugs, um, uh, you know, outside of patients, um, uh, which is, uh, you know, something we've done for years in cancer. But, but, but when it comes to immunotherapy or using the immune system specifically, um, it's really taken some um, technological development to be able to take a patient's tumor biopsy straight to the laboratory um, and with immune cells and tumor cells in the mix, uh, actually understand um, you know, in, in the laboratory directly what therapies actually um, show promise for an individual patient or let's say a you know, population of patients. And then, uh, you know, where would I finish? I guess, um, you know, the, the third domain um, really is um, going much more broadly uh, beyond genetics, beyond genomics, um, and thinking about how cancers are um, wired, if you will, 
in ways that, that, that really don't, that they're not, not a direct consequence of those mutated uh, genes that we've been going after for the last 20 years. But, you know, I'll just be quick and say that in uh, areas like epigenetics and metabolism, these are, you know, really potentially big transformative opportunities where we have very few drugs even in the pipeline now, but where I, I, I foresee a, a lot of expansion over the next couple few years. When, when you think about cancer, I mean, the layperson, they hear cancer and these treatments for cancer, but it's almost like each different type of cancer is its own disease. And today at the inauguration, you know, I, we saw Joe Biden inaugurated as the 46th president. It reminded me, you know, of course, sadly, his son died of cancer mm-hmm. and he had this initiative that we were going to cure cancer in 10 years. Now, how do you feel about the, the future? I know I'm asking you a complicated question, but do you no, think no. we'll ever find a, a cure or will it be the type of thing where similar to maybe like HIV where people can, we can control it and people can live with it? Yep. Yep. No, I think your question's right on. Uh, so I, so a couple things. One is um, there really is a, you know, if you look across all cancer, uh, what, what's happened particularly over the past 10 years is that we've identified these discrete groups of patients, um, you know, and, and more often than not, it's not based on a definition of cancer by what I call site of origin. By that, I mean like lung cancer versus breast cancer versus colon cancer, but rather based on, you know, the molecular makeup. Um, and, and there's a, you know, I guess I, I oftentimes use the phrase, you know, dividing and conquering, where, in other words, if we can figure out how to redefine cancer on this molecular basis, time and again, that's how we've made really big advances for, you know, those subgroups of patients. But unfortunately, you know, the dividing and conquering, it does leave aside, um, you know, entire cancer populations for which we haven't made advances. And, and President Biden's son died of a brain tumor, and, and brain tumors collectively, and glioblastoma being the most common and deadly one of them, that's a, a really um, quintessential example of a cancer type um, where we've just really not been able to um, make substantial inroads. And there are others. And so what I'm getting at is it's very uneven, right, the advances um, that have been made. And I think one can expect to see that. So it's not going to be an overnight thing where, you know, all of cancer advances with one therapeutic approach. But, you know, even with these PD-1 antibodies that I was referring to that really, you know, began, you know, declaring their benefit now, you know, five plus years ago broadly across cancer, it's about 10% of cancer patients roughly um, who get a really profound benefit from that therapy. And that's actually kind of a big jump, you know, to have, you know, a single type of treatment produce that type of effect. More commonly, we've seen advances made that, you know, benefit, let's say, 2% or, you know, some, or maybe even 1%. So I think one should be prepared for that type of unevenness um, going forward if we're going to keep following, you know, kind of these you know, new insights uh, regarding new, uh, new treatment vulnerabilities. So that, I think that's, um, you know, that's kind of how I see this as kind of an uneven landscape um, and where we're able to make, you know, kind of, you know, quantum leaps, if you will, uh, one group at a time. I think also in your question, um, you know, about this idea that like you know, everybody's cancer is, is you know, ultimately sort of unique. Yeah, that's true, but uh, to a degree, but, but there's actually a lot of cross-cutting themes. Um, again, this is where I think, you know, many of us in the field feel like we need to break down the definition of cancer to a more molecular definition and, and get away from, you know, this, you know, breast cancer versus lung cancer versus colon cancer, you know, way of thinking, which is, you know, kind of our long history. Um, and I say that partly because, um, if you think about HIV as the paradigm, we have in cancer many more diseases, basically. Uh, but the way I, you know, think of it now is that, you know, to produce what you're referring to, which is kind of long-lasting disease control where people can go about their lives 
Um, it's going to take multi-drug multi regimens like HIV, right? As you know, the, you know, the typical patient with HIV is on three drugs simultaneously. Uh, with cancer, I actually would push it up a little bit and say probably more likely based on you know, current evidence, we think it might actually take four drug regimens. But think of it this way, that the toolbox that we need um, needs to contain many more therapies than we have currently, but not an infinite number. And, and consider that the, that the four drug regimens that might be needed for four you know, distinct cancer patients um, might borrow from the toolbox differently, but where you're gonna see you know, a given therapy showing up across multiple different patients' cancer, right? So, so the combination lock, if you will, of matching these therapies to a molecular understanding of cancer um, I think it's going to allow us to keep reaching back into the same toolbox is what I'm getting at. Um, and yes, those combinations, then when you, you know, just do the math, um, produce a lot of different combinations. I think the, the tools that we actually need are probably not going to need to be more than, I'll just pick a number just so we have something to think about, you know, 100 or so uh, individual um, tools or individual therapies. That's really interesting. Uh, this is Dean Finale on Politics and Life Science Radio. I'm talking with Dr. Keith Flaherty. Dr. Flaherty, when, you know, in the news, pretty much everything is saturated with the virus and the vaccines and the rollout. Has, have you seen, as far as other, the progression of other clinical trials and drug development in other areas, has, are there any limitations that the, the, all this focus on the coronavirus has sort of stopped, for example, even the FDA from reviewing stuff but from the research side? Have you seen any of the science kind of slow down uh, because of mm. the, the focus on the coronavirus vaccine? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It, it, uh, the answer is yes. We have seen some negative impacts in that regard. I mean, laboratory research really couldn't justifiably continue uh, when we were really worried about, you know, the density of people in workplaces just, you know, giving the virus an opportunity to continue taking hold. And so, yes, biomedical research of this sort is is a very pressing and urgent need. But you know, in the early part of the pandemic in the U.S., at least, we, we really had no choice um, across the whole biomedical research enterprise to really, you know, shut down for a good couple months there. But then since then, um, that apparatus has, has absolutely been, been back in operation. Clinical trials, similarly, um, you know, that, those were difficult to keep going in the early part of the pandemic, um, big slowdown for a couple few months, and then, you know, let's say 75-80% recovery um, you know, with 100% being, you know, full full recovery of, you know, kind of usual um, conduct of clinical trials. So, so there's been an impact. Um, but I think, you know, if you just count the months um, and sort of, you know, consider the, you know, what that slowdown has meant, I, you know, I think we're going to recover from that, um, and and probably in a decade's time, you know, not really consider that to have slowed us down much. Um, I, I actually think, you know, there's there's some really positive things that we've learned in terms of what a concerted effort, uh, concerted scientific effort, public and private both, um, can produce. I mean, the, the, the timeline, as you're well aware, from first sequencing the virus to now having truly effective vaccines, 95% efficacy, it's just stunning. And it was absolutely you know, not predicted um, back in the spring and the summer when people were considering historical standards. So how can we you know, take that type of you know, process, the, you know, the, the sort of pipeline of innovation there, and consider how to try to make our advances more rapid in other life-threatening diseases like cancer. Um, a lot of us in the field are, have, have you know, uh, focused on that uh, question a lot because I think COVID um, has really um, has taught us that that there what we thought were immovable barriers um, maybe are not. It really is a scientific miracle to get this going, and these 
companies, these mRNA vaccines that are out, have been developing in research for decades now. When you yeah. think about other areas outside of oncology, you know, in the in the context of you know mRNA in general, we're treating diseases. What other areas outside of oncology are you optimistic about? Uh, well, RNA therapeutics, um, the challenge has really been a matter of delivery. Uh, in other words, how do you, can, can you make these truly systemic therapies? Can you actually you know, deliver them to all tissues in the body? Um, that's, a, that's a cancer problem, actually, but it's also a, a, you know, for, for other diseases as well. Um, and that's where, you know, these RNA vaccines, just to remind you, you know, they're inoculated locally, you know, kind of you know, in the same way we receive vaccines, uh, you know, into muscle. Um, and then all, all one needs is for the RNA to be uh, transcribed, translated, sorry, and the, and the protein products to be made there locally. The immune system can find those um, and then generate an immune response that it, it then carries throughout the body. Um, so, so that 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 isn't an example that's quite overcome the delivery problem. I should, you know, just quickly mention that um, the same the same kind of RNA platform actually is being used in oncology, in situations where you can directly inject a tumor, um, but that's a limited um, proportion of the cancer population where that's, uh, you know, a, a can really turn, uh, you know, the entire entirety of someone's cancer. A lot of active research about, you know, trying to um, see if we can't expand that effect. So I would, I would say actually going beyond oncology, um, you know, yes, there are diseases that affect just a single organ, let's say, you know, the, like dysfunction in the liver comes in many forms in terms of inborn uh, genetic conditions, uh, as an example, um, where even this delivery problem there um, isn't so much a matter of getting whole body delivery, but, but where you need the entire organ, like every, you know, virtually every cell, um, you know, to be uh, affected by the treatment. Um, this, this has been the technological uh, challenge, and, and I've you know been around um, delivery technology for my entire career, you know, 20 years and counting, and um, and that's you know you'd almost say that's an engineering um, issue as much of a, as a biology one. Uh, if we could overcome that, then RNA therapeutics and frankly a whole bunch of other therapies uh, would you know kind of overnight become uh, you know likely more impactful. And the last question I'll ask you is. You know, you mentioned earlier about the understanding of chemistry, and obviously there's molecular biology and a lot of the confluence of a lot of different sciences in this. You know, what advice do you give to grad students, uh, postdocs uh, going forward when they're, or even undergrads for that matter, when they're thinking, you know, mm. which, which direction do I want to go? What, as a professor, what, the, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I guess, you know, a common theme is I always tell them, you know, that um, certainly in cancer, you know, we really look at the world now from this broad landscape perspective, and that's, you know, the DNA, RNA, protein level within single cells, and then networks of cells, uh, tumor cells, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the normal cells that are sort of co-opted um, around a tumor to participate uh, in the formation uh, of a tumor, and then, of course, how the tumors interact or don't interact with the immune system. Um, and so there's this, um, this need to be thinking in a very holistic way that requires becoming at least fluent and then conversant in computational biology and bioinformatics in a way that, you know, 20 years ago that, you know, there wasn't even a discipline um, that, 